0: Welcome to RAQA Today, the podcast that puts the fun back in quality, compliance, and regulatory affairs. Here's your host, Michelle Lott. Today we're going to go through the new FDA guidances, the proposed guidances uh, that will be the beginning of the end of the EUAs. I have a sidekick today, Ty Benson. She is a biomedical engineer um, by education. She has worked at several medical device and IVD companies. Um, So she's well-trained in the REQA fine arts. And then she, as my sidekick, she's also a grief counselor in training for uh, because regulatory is hard to deal with for a lot of people. With these guidances, is this gonna be the end of the world as we have come to know it and we return to normal operations in in terms of how to bring products to market with the FDA? So, the FDA issued two draft guidances in December 2021. One was for the enforcement policies and one was for the emergency use authorizations. Just to align on the difference between the policies and the EUAs, an enforcement policy was an actual kind of guidance document published by the FDA. There were 28 of these issued, um, where an emergency use authorization was a previously unapproved medical product. And it was, they did a mini submission and they got an actual letter from the FDA to authorize their use. There were not over 900 of these issued. The enforcement policy is gonna be in effect throughout the public health emergency where the EUAs it, it required a submission. And its approval timeline is significantly less than 510K. The enforcement policies did not require a direct submission to the FDA. Once the emergency is over, the products under the enforcement policy need to meet all applicable FDA requirements, and the emergency use out- authorization must receive full 510K for market clearance to remain on the market. Take note, these guidance documents are viewed only as recommendations, and we have the classic should and is something that's suggested or recommended but not required. We all know that with FDA guidance documents, if you're not going to meet the guidance, you really need to go above and beyond or have a really strong rationale of why the guidance doesn't apply to you, And also take note that there are 98 footnotes between these two guidance documents, and these are critical to properly interpreting and applying the FDA expectations. In the webinar that the FDA did on these guidance documents themselves, they even referred to, oh, that's in a footnote, let me find it, several times. So, don't discount the importance of the footnote in properly interpreting and applying them to the requirements for your product. So, as a disclaimer, this information, the information in this presentation is current to the best of my understanding and the FDA publications as of March the 3rd, but it is subject to change at the FDA interpretation without notice, especially given the 98 footnotes that affect how, how the guidance document reads. Also, every time that me and Ty read the guidance documents, we had a different interpretation and understanding. So even this morning, we got some additional possible clarity. So, so take, take this as, as my, my, this kind of state of my best understanding right now. So FDA has a three-phase transition plan for both of these guidance documents. And in both, the guiding principles are the same. The intent is to facilitate continued access, allowing for an orderly and transparent transition, using a risk-based approach. And then FDA still at any time can take action um, that includes a revo- revocation of the EUA or withdrawal or revision of an ent- enforcement policy or action. So when I first read these, I was wondering, why are there two separate documents? Um, Because a lot of the information is redundant between the two. And I, I believe it's because the EUAs, and we'll see this in the timeline examples, are issued by HHS and not FDA, whereas the policies were issued by FDA. So devices under the enforcement policy, if you do not plan to continue distribution, For single use devices, life-sustaining, life-supporting, you can remain distributed and they can remain distributed until they're consumed. A reusable, non-life-supporting, not non-life-sustaining, they can remain used and distributed if they are restored or to their cleared or approved version or has labeling that delineates its clearance or approval status. Um, reusable life supporting, life sustaining can remain distributed if they are restored to their previous version or they have labeling um, that indicates their, their status. IVDs under the EUA can remain distributed for two years until the expiration date, whichever is less. So, what the FDA is proposing for the policy products is a three phase approach that has a 180 day transition period for that list one. They are two hypothetical timelines. So the final issuance of this guidance could happen at any point on this continuum. Let's just say that it comes out in July. Now it could come out anytime before or after, but putting this as a, a stake in the ground the PH, if the guidance is issued prior to the PHE expiration, you have 90 days, that, that's when phase one begins, and you have 90 days to implement phase two. And then you have a total of 180 days, so you have another 90 days past phase two to implement phase three where the enforcement policies will be withdrawn. Alternatively, if the PHE expires prior to the guidance document expiration, and again, this guidance document, or the guidance document issuance, the, again, this guidance document could be in, issued in its final version at any any time or point after the PHE expiration. Let's just say it's March to the 9th. The FDA has, has to have at least 45 days in between the issuance of the final guidance document and the implementation date for phase one. So if the PHE expires before the final guidance, you don't have 90 days at this point unless the final guidance specifies that, but it must specify at least 45 days. Then between phase one and phase two, you have 90 days and another 90 days between phase two and phase three. This applies to the list one guidance documents. This is just a handful of them, the, you know, refer to the, the guidance document for the full list. So with this three-phase approach, how many fingers am I really holding up here? Because I really only see two phases. So let's, let's break this down. So you, we have the implementation date and right? And immediately you have to, for the EUAs, you have to submit a a notification of intent for the EUAs. You have to follow part 803 if you are not already. Begin. And then in phase one, this is when you need to begin your bitch testing, begin your pre-submissions to avoid missing your phase two deadline. Preferably you start these activities beforehand. And depending on your technology, this this still might not be early enough to get your products across the finish line in time for submission. So when phase two begins, you need to submit your notification of intent for the enforcement policies, even if you're not intending to distribute after the transition period. At this point, you need to follow a part 806 for corrections and removals and 807 for registration and listing. But this is where it's super important to read the language that FDA uses because in the description of the activities in part in phase three in the policies guidance, they use phrases like prior to, well in advance of, And before the start of phase three. So, to me, any of those activities that say prior to phase three mean that they should happen in phase two. So, with that understanding, FDA expects your marketing submissions are submitted and accepted during phase two, before the start of phase three, and that all regulatory requirements are met and implemented in this phase. So this includes 21 CFR 820 for the quality system regulation to be implemented in phase two at the same time that you are submitting your premarket authorization or 510k and whereas typically part 820 isn't implemented in full until after you receive market clearance. So, phase three begins, and then at that point, the FDA withdraws its list one enforcement policies. At this point, FDA is not going to object if you have an accepted submission and you can continue marketing your products during during phase three. We're going to break down each one of these phases in the challenges section. Um, so that you you better understand all that's implicated in this timeline. So the timeline gets even more nebulous for EUAs. So line 94 says that it's the Secretary of HHS that is required to provide advance notice that the EUA declaration will be terminated and publish this notice in the Federal Register. Then line 109 says this guidance contemplates that the advance notice of the termination of the EUA declaration pertaining to vices will be published in the federal register 180 days before the day the EUA declaration is terminated. So we're waxing philosophical here if if we're gonna really have a 180 day transition plan for the EUAs because it may not be guaranteed you may have even less time to comply for EUA products. For the notification of of intent, you should submit this information if you have an EUA number as an EUA report attention notification of intent. This is to contain general information, future plans for your marketing submissions, or future plans for your the discontinuation of your distribution and how you're going to pull those products or otherwise relabel your the products in the market. And note you need to uh, is, submit a notification of intent in either situation, even if you discontinue distribution. So these are the devices that require notification of intent. Note that the tubing connectors for co-venting this product code is in table one of the EUA transition and not in the enforcement policy in the same table in the enforcement policy guidance. So what does the paths forward look like? Well, if you're not going to distribute after list one is withdrawn, you refer to the phased approach, but be aware that some of the info is intended only for those products remaining on the market. You still need to submit that notification of intent, and you will be expected to comply with all regulatory uh, requirements as long as they remain applicable, and this includes possibly beyond the end of distribution. So your drop-dead deadlines include on the EUA termination date, if you've not submitted a marketing submission and have had it accepted before the termination date, before the beginning of phase three, if the manufacturer has not submitted that marketing submission for its device and had it accepted, or on the date you receive a negative decision on your marketing submission as FDA's final action, on the date you withdraw your submission or fail to provide a complete response. So devices under enforcement policy and EUAs, if you do plan to continue distribution, you need a transition implementation plan uh, to keep that train on the tracks. So the purpose of the transition plan is to indicate to FDA your plan if the submission is denied, there is a set of content that you have to submit for that. There is a set of content you have to submit if the plan is approved and then in which case you can continue to market with your legally commercialized device and your plan to rectify the devices already under distribution. So what's the difference in the notification of intent versus the transition implementation plan? They have several sh- sections of shared content. In the general information for the transition implementation plan, you also need to include the number of devices in distribution. Obviously, you are already in a marketing submission here, so that's going to be uh, kind of a moot point. Your future plans have to be addressed in both documents. And in your transition implementation plan, you must also address the benefit risks of both stages of your plan. So additional considerations are all of the, the timing of the compliance with all the fd and Act requirements. Manufacturers uh, may request an exemption to uh, the time frame for compliance. This has been uh, proposed for non-traditional medical device manufacturers that might have, say, a 9001 quality management system from some other industry, additional time to transition their quality management systems. But note the FDA can enter and inspect any warehouse or factory during this this period of time as well. So what about COVID-19 testing? The policy guidance specifically states that COVID-19 is outside of that guidance. There's no similar statement in the EU transition, but they do include a single example about COVID tests, and it puts limits on the distribution for those IVD tests. Otherwise, no information is available at this time so the the diagnostics is kind of a, a unique situation right now. So questions and challenges. So what about devices that are known to need clinical data to support their indication? Even if they're in trials now, depending on the time frame that these uh, determinations go into effect, It's very likely that anything that needs trial data, will have that data in time to put it into a submission to have that submission accepted. So what's the FDA's plan for these devices that involve clinical trials that are doing the best they can to collect effort but the timeline doesn't allow? So when filing your submission through eCopy, where do you put that transition implementation plan? At best, eCopy is extremely finicky about naming conventions and, you know, you could put it as maybe uh, the back, you know, an extension to the cover letter. Maybe it goes in the executive summary. Maybe it goes as an appendix. But e- even if you make it through uh, e-copy with where you put it or attach it, then FDA is going to be a Where's Waldo to find your transition implementation plan within the submission. What about registration and listing? Manufacturers are being told to register and list before receiving their market clearance, but you can't list a device without a valid submission number from your clearance and approval letter. The FDA database will literally kind of black out that product code if you have not already issued, entered your submission number. So which comes first, you, your submission or uh, your listing, the way that the registration listing database is structured, it is your submission number. The reason why I know this is because during the early COVID, I needed to register one of my clients with this with, with a product under enforcement. So I had to email Dice to get instructions on how to do that, and you have to enter the word enforcement in the place that you would issue your submission number. Now, I asked the question of the FDA in their recent um, webinar on this and about, you know, given that you have to have a submission number, how should companies that don't yet have a cleared submission but have to register in advance of having a clear submission complete this? And they just said, we have something on device advice about that. Well, I looked it up on Device Advice and it does not discuss how to list products under enforcement policies. In fact, under Device Advice, it sends you from one page to another and it specifically says you must have your pre-market clearance number to complete the listing. So this is kind of a little known piece of information that I feel should be in the guidance document with clear instructions that not only should the companies register and list under the word enforcement for their particular product codes when they make their submission, but then also clarification that when they get their submission clearance and that they need to go back and update their device listing with their their k number or other submission number to make that listing correct and complete so for products that must submit a notification of intent you know it's not clear if the agency is going to provide feedback to manufacturers so that they can incorporate that into their subsequent transition implementation plan The FDA is also is strongly encouraging pre-submissions, especially if you have any kind of uh, novel or unique feature or situation that doesn't clearly fit in one of these guidance documents. But if you look at the standard Q-submission timeline for a pre-sub from start to finish, especially if you have a meeting with FDA, the standard timeline, is from 70 to 120 days if you have a a teleconference. And so FDA is suggesting that within the 100 days, you can complete a pre-submission, incorporate that feedback into your submission and have that accept that um, even to get a submission, the data that you need for a submission completed without a pre-submission is challenging. So phase one, of the challenges do essentially nothing because the bulk of the both the EUAs and the enforcement policies already require you to comply with Part 803. There are some of the enforcement policies that don't specifically state compliance with Part 803. Um, One of the comments that I'm gonna suggest to the Federal Register is that FDA be very specific about which products do and do not currently require Part 803 because most of them should have already been compliant and you're just digging through all the guidance documents to figure out, okay, what what really applies to my product when, and some of these should have already been doing it. This is all that's mentioned in the guidance document. There haven't brought up no, any mention of testing or submissions. It is redundant from the requirements that are already in place for the bulk of the enforcement policy and the EUAs. So why waste so much time? And back to those confusing statements that occur in the description of phase three, well, the term well in advance of phase three is used to, to modify when you should start your submissions. Well, well in advance of phase three could imply phase one. It would be very helpful for FDA to flat out say, start your submit, the preparation for your submission now, not well in advance of. So, you know, the question is why repeat those requirements? You know, is this a get out of jail free to reiterate it to the companies? that should have already been compliant, or is this uh, a catch-all for those few companies that uh, fall within early guidance documents that didn't mention 803? So phase two, this is do it all. And uh, I say this is time now, if we were kind of trying to stay relatively calm before, now we're going to freak out and panic, because in phase two, Um, Again, if you properly interpret the prior twos in advance of and before the start of phase three, this is all that needs to happen in phase two. You need to meet all regulatory and statutory requirements. um, And so you better work on those SOPs now. Your pre submissions should be complete. Your submissions must be in and accepted. If you're not distributing, you need to modify your products in the field and still implement uh, applicable requirements. So why is this particular timeline so condensed? It takes months to implement an entire quality management system, let alone train and generate uh, train your staff and generate your records. Phase three is hurry up and wait. Phase three begins, and FDA withdraws all enforcement policies. At this point. There are no other activities for industry to take other than to continue compliance for the distribution until they receive the decision letter, positive or negative, on their submission and execute their transition implementation plans. So congratulations, you made it across that finish line, only to wait in line. So COVID-19 testing, this is kind of the middle child uh, between the enforcement policy and the EUA guidance document. The status of the COVID-19 testing uh, that is in stock at a company and not in a distribution chain, is it dead or is it viable for the, the remaining two years? Also unclear if manufacturers can continue to distribute their COVID tests, and there's currently no other transition guidance related to diagnostic testing. And per the FDA's webinar, the situation is very fluid. Keep an eye on all future guidance documents and attend all the town halls um, to get the latest information and FDA thinking on COVID tests. So you really need to have your say in this process. The FDA encourages you to comment on the following topics, whether the 180-day transition period before the FDA withdraws the guidances in list one would be sufficient, would sufficiently allow for an appropriate transition period. The FDA wants you uh, suggestions to add or remove guidance documents to list one, and FDA's proposal to extend the effectiveness of the guidance documents in list one for either for 180 days, or if the PHE declaration expires for at least 225 days. Note, you have to submit your, your comments on both documents by March 23rd, 2022. This is how you submit them. There are two different docket numbers. So just make note that you submit appropriately for the policies versus the um, EUAs. Uh, on the EUAs, you need to comment on the transition period and the, gui- the, the transition policy proposed in that guidance. So there's still many questions we just touched on, the largest one, uh, the largest ones that we feel like both pose the biggest challenge to industry. Ask the FDA your own questions or let us help. We are preparing a letter that will go out early next week with this, with this slide deck with a proposed draft letter and also a table of the inconsistencies or questions from each guidance document that, that you can use as a template. You know, please take it, evaluate if you agree or not, update it, and then submit your own comments to the guidance document. It's really important that your voice is heard in this to help FDA form a reasonable transition plan that's going to be viable for industry and then also manageable in terms of FDA resources. So last but not least, you need to start now. FDA's current thinking on the timeline isn't realistic and if our current understanding of the implementation of phase three, there will be no leniency and there is little time for your performance testing, for your biocompatibility testing, for your clinical testing that will need to be executed. So start those things um, now and don't wait. So I've got some resources on my uh, website for how to bring products to market um, with a regulatory pathway assessment um, that will map out your regulatory requirements for your submission. And then I can help support you from early concept development, all the way through um, commercialization and beyond. With that, I will bring Ty on, and Ty will help moderate questions and help me uh, answer in dialogue as well. Hi, everyone. Please uh, go ahead
1: and put your questions in the chat. There's already a couple, so I'm going to start reading those. So Guillermo, Cohen asked what happens when there is no product code. And he did ask that originally, uh, right when we were talking about notification of intent, to just put some context around that. Um, and I think this is I think this is really interesting because, um, well, Michelle can give her thoughts on it, but I have a lot of thoughts about the de novos, potentially.
0: Knock yourself out.
1: <laughs> um, so I think FDA, you know, there's not a lot of information or discussion about the de novos in this guidance document. And we have a lot of them that are going to be coming through, especially with all of the COVID diagnostic tests and the remote monitoring indication expansions for a lot of these devices. And FDA hasn't provided any guidance on that in in these uh, two transition plans. They don't talk about, you know, It takes a really long time to get a de novo you know cleared it takes and then you have to do a de novo request to get it and so much additional testing and it's just not practical in their timeline and then not only that the de novos you know i would expect most of them need to submit a notification of intent but how is fda get a request for that given they don't know the product codes but the notification of intent is for I mean, really those higher risk devices, not high risk devices, but medium risk devices. And they haven't said anything. I don't know what your thoughts are on product code.
0: Yeah, Uh, and I think that that's probably a, a good area for industry to expand their comments to, is to that the guidance document should speak a little bit more clearly to those products that will fall into the de novo. And perhaps there should be a different timeline for the products that would would meet the de novo classification versus a uh, 510k.
1: Michael Oblin said, so all of the transition plan details you outlined for EUA devices, 90-day versus 100-day, phase one, phase two, et cetera, don't apply to IVDs and there's no other guidance policy for those. Are they, as of now, in limbo regarding a transition plan?
0: That is one of the 98 footnotes in the guidance is that it does not apply to the COVID test. The FDA reiterated that in their webinar and uh, said to just stay tuned in the the town halls for what their thinking is. And then on top of that, you know, as Ty already mentioned, there's only one test that's been cleared, and it was a PCR that was cleared through a de novo, and then it had a subsequent 510K. So it's one, and it's the same company. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of questions around how are the tests gonna come to market? Or are we gonna have every person submitting a de novo all right off the bat? And then what happens when that first one gets cleared? Are they going to get converted to 510Ks if that first one was a reasonable predicate? So I think that there's a lot to look forward to in terms of of understanding how the FDA is going to transition the COVID tests and what their submission strategy is going to be.
1: In fact, all of those EUA products, from my interpretation, don't have a clear timeline because that's where in that particular transition guidance, they say uh, FDA contemplates that this is going to be 180 days from the time HHS publishes in the Federal Registrar. But if HHS, the Secretary, if they publish the withdrawal of the EUA, you know, and you have 90 days for public comment, and they turn around and incorporate all those comments, you know, your timeline could start right there because the the transition guidance is very clear that once that EUA meets its termination date, it is terminated. So yeah, there's a lot of questions, particularly about the EUA and the COVID-19 tests fall under that, that is uh, unique. An anonymous attendee asks, have you seen industry provide feedback to the agency yet regarding these drafts? And if so, what type of feedback?
0: So you can um, log into the Federal Register through those links in the presentation, or if you you can just go there yourself um, today if you'd like, and you can look up and you can view all the comments to the Register to date. Uh, I have not looked there yet, so I'm not sure what what early feedback. But you do have till March 22nd to leave your comments.
1: So for COVID tests. As a distributor, what is the impact to the distributor as the regulation changes? Can products on the shelf be saleable through expiration of distributed
0: products? Yeah, so those are the exact questions that I post in the presentation that are really unclear because the the guidance only speaks to that they can remain in distribution for two years.
1: So the guidance leaves it a little bit open to inter it does leave it a little bit open because it says you have two years for distributed. they're not going to object to distributed product and you have two years to consume that product or until the product's expiration date whichever is first but it doesn't address you know any stockpiles that manufacturers might have it doesn't mention like if you manufacture you have to stop manufacturing and so if you have it in a distributor, it's probably okay. But if you are your own distributor, can you continue to sell your inventory? You know, it's not very clear in the guidance. It's one little bit of sentence. And that's why we called the, the COVID 19 test kind of the middle child.
0: They just don't seem to be getting any attention. So we have an interesting question that I have a lot of um, <laughs> opinion and experience with that is not gonna be popular. But our our company is still contemplating on submitting life support ventilator under the ventilator EUA umbrella. We have a a 510K almost ready, but is waiting for biocompatibility tests. Should we still pursue EUA path based on all the work that needs to be pursued during the transition? So that's, that's a great question given the complications of the timeline. And it's even a better question because of the unknown of if the FDA is publishing their thoughts on winding this down, are they going to continue to clear or authorize products? And I'll tell you this, based off of personal experience, we worked on an EUA for a therapy that would be an alternative to putting somebody on a ventilator, like before they they escalated to that point, it would ideally keep people from being on a on a ventilator. It was a very low technology, easily accessible product, and it relied on a particular configuration of already cleared devices as well. And this was in the height of the pandemic in 2020, and we got feedback from the FDA that said the FDA was unaware of continued shortages to ventilators, like as a general rule across the country and in areas like Arizona, where we were petitioning to use it in the Navajo Nation, they said people could be life flighted from the area that had limited access to ventilators to areas that had more ventilators free that weren't in a spike. And I've I received that feedback on several other different types of devices where FDA is unaware of a continued shortage, even though there was a policy and a guidance document and it was shocking. And so if the FDA said that in the height of the pandemic, then what are they going to say now when they are, Formally trying to wind this down. Just food for thought. And if you're doing all the work, anyways, you're going to be super close to submission. I would get in line for a properly cleared product rather than an EUA. Just
1: another additional food for thought. If you just, you know, you have to decide for your business what's the best strategy. But if you do go the EUA route as a ventilator, you're going to now have to do the notification of intent and the transition implementation plan in your 510K, where before you wouldn't have because you haven't distributed or sold it under an EUA. So it would just go straight through a traditional channel. So another anonymous attendee says, for life-supporting and life-sustaining products, such as Vents, do we know FDA's bandwidth with accepting all pre-market applications, given majority reviewers have been pulled from day to
0: day to review uh, and support EUAs? Yeah, so I think that this does go along a bit with the previous uh, conversation. And I think that, you know, I think that that's probably the reason for the withdrawal of the guidance document at phase three is that hopefully all those resources that were dedicated to EUA now kind of go gangbusters on submissions. Um, but I think that there's definitely gonna be a resource constraint at the FDA which which is why in phase three, they say, well, in advance of phase three, start your pre-market suv- submission. Well, if the other things in phase three say prior to or before the start of phase three, but submissions say, well, in advance of phase three, then that means you know the earlier you get your submission, in the queue the the more likely you are to receive clearance in a timely fashion
1: and fda does mention directly in the guidance that they are intending to use notification of intent for resource planning purposes which is why they want them so early so i think that you know fda feels the pressure from industry that they don't have enough resources and they're trying to accommodate the best that they can
0: That's a good point. The the point, the purpose of the notification of intent, and I believe the reason you have to do it, whether both if you're not going to submit and if you're going to submit is so that the FDA can brace for impact for the submissions, that they can have an idea of how many are going to really be coming in.
1: Yeah, because that list is very specific to, you know, mostly life-sustaining products or life-supporting. So we have one last question, unless anyone else has other questions. An anonymous attendee says this talk is focused on medical devices. I haven't seen any similar contents regarding drugs, biologics under EUA. Do you have any insights on applicability of these EUA guidances to the drugs or biologic
0: EUAs? There's no, no relation or correlation. And I'm also unaware of the FDA's pub- publishing anything on those areas. If COVID tests were outside of the scope of these guidance documents, I can guarantee you, uh, biologics and drugs are are outside the scope.
1: You know, I kind of think that the EUA situation, where you have a true proper EUA, is going to be it's, its own game because the transition guidance has a lot of the same information that the enforcement policy what, does, but it is redacted. It has it, it's a little more flexible for a later. EUA specific transition to come around because they don't publish a formal timeline. They, you know, they put a lot of you know conjecture in it. So the EUAs are gonna be a whole different ball game, in my opinion. I think it's gonna be a lot more dependent on what your product is. Well, thank you,
0: Michelle and uh, Ty. Appreciate that. Um, I'd like to thank you for a very informative and important webinar.